Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gives you inside access to how retail real estate's most successful leaders went from being an average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CASCM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. David Birdsall's path to commercial real estate is certainly one that can be described as unconventional. His family dealt with tragedy in his youth. He was kicked out of college his freshman year and served in the army for several years. Yet today, he's the co-founder and chief investment officer of Last Mile Investments, a vertically integrated Cincinnati-based group that acquires unanchored retail properties across the country. David's story is not only unique, but he tells in a humble while entertaining way with some incredible wisdom that we can all learn from. Here's my conversation with David Birdsall. Okay, we're back. Couldn't be any more excited to have David Birdsall, the co-founder and managing director of Last Mile Investments based in Cincinnati. David, thanks for joining us. How are you? Hey, great, Aaron. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really jacked up to have you. I know you're going to provide a ton of value to our listeners. So let's just jump right into it. Let's go way back to when you were a little birdie. <laughs> Un- absolutely intended. Where are you from? How'd you grow up? What was your family dynamic situation? Sure. So I grew up in God's country, otherwise known as Wisconsin. <laughs> I'm from a suburb outside of Wisconsin called Brookfield and had my formative years there. I am one of five in a staunchly Irish Catholic uh, family. So I am the second youngest. My older siblings are 10 years older than me. And I have a younger brother who's two years younger than me. So wait, let me get this straight. Your parents had one, waited 10 years, and then had four more? Yeah, actually, there was a child in between. And unfortunately, he was killed. So I was born after him. So yeah. Wow. Okay, then. I... Obviously, when asking the question, I had no idea. No, you, you could ask. I mean, he was hit by a car when he was three years old. And that actually influences a lot of kind of my story and influences the life that I led. I will tell you, I've gotten chills. You wait to get blown away until... Yeah, usually it's in. more than 45 <laughs> seconds into the podcast. Yeah. But that being said, if anything good has come of it, which certainly, obviously, everybody's probably at the edge of their seats right now to yeah. hear about your path and... Yeah, maybe I'll just I'll just kind of touch. I won't be that mysterious about it. I mean, and so you know, when you have a tragedy like that happen in your family, I know you have kids. I have three kids. It it kind of weaves into the fabric of your story intentionally or unintentionally. So I kind of led a different life than my older siblings, but honestly, surprisingly, much more of a. I always tell my kids like I had a I had a very Huckfin lifestyle. My parents were very. First of all, I think they were just exhausted from me and my shenanigans, but also they gave me a ton of freedom. And that was in an era growing up in the 70s and 80s where it isn't like it is today, where I think parents are right or wrong, you know, much more involved or a little bit of helicopter. I mean, I couldn't, I have friends, I'm like, you track your kids. What are you talking about? Like, oh my God, I can't imagine my parents would track me. And thank God they didn't. <laughs> but it gave me a lot of. I had a lot of freedom growing up. I was not a athlete. I had a disease. It was called NT, no talent. <laughs> so I could, 
I was not an athlete, but I was involved in things. I was actually surprisingly, believe it or not, I was very involved in the theater when I was in high school and really loved that. It kind of was my kind of creative, kind of fit my personality. And I think growing up like that, you know, I had very loving parents and I was very blessed to have that. But I think my mom was especially affected by that, but she really channeled a lot of her love. And same, same with my dad. They were very into us. So, so you had an older brother and then you are obviously elder than the three remaining siblings. No, no. I have My younger brothers, I have one younger brother. Yeah. And I have a younger brother. I had two older brothers, one passed, and then I have another older brother and two older sisters. Got it. Okay. So how are you as a student? I was like every other real estate student. I was like thriving, right? I did really well in the things that I liked and I sucked in the things that I didn't like. So I was an average high B's student, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't getting any academic scholarship. Let me tell you that. I can relate all too well. So when you say you did well in the classes that you liked, what were those classes other than theater, of course? History. Theater wasn't a class, it was just an elective, or it was just something I did extracurricular. History, I loved. I was really English and I ended up being an English major in college. So those kind of more liberal arts classes, I was a reader from a very young age and my parents were readers. So I was really always engrossed with books. When I was, when I was in the army, I like, you know, we're always like, Bert, so why do you always have a book on you? And I was like, cause it's just time to read. Like <laughs> there's an opportunity to read. I like to read. So those are the classes I really liked. And because I, I read a quote once and I always loved it. And I think it was by the guy who wrote Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin. He said, if I read, I can live many lives. And I was like that. If I don't read, I live one life. If I read, I can lead many lives. Or I'm kind of paraphrasing the quote there, but you get it. I like it. No, that's pretty cool. So far, we're off to a very unconventional start, which I love. Because we've had a pattern here on the podcast. I mean, if you go back and listen to the 25, 30 episodes or so at the time of this recording that we have out there, there's some common themes. Not great students <laughs> is certainly one of them. And you know, not to say that I would be worthy of being a guest on the show, but I certainly can relate. And a lot of our guests have been that way. We've also had some guests that have been thriving academically. So there's an inconsistent path there. A lot of our guests are athletes, very driven people. And when they did thrive in school, they really liked numbers and math. And I heard from you, wasn't an athlete, super left side brain driven, creative, artsy. What characteristics were you born with? Sort of give us a tease a little bit. What characteristics were you born with that have set you up for so much success in your career long term without giving away too much of your story, which I know is a tough one to answer? Yeah, I think I was born with a lot of optimism. My parents were optimistic people. We can get into that later. But my, my dad was in real estate, which, you know, in the 70s and 80s. But I think I was born with a lot of belief in myself, like, oh, you know what? I can do that. Like, I don't understand why I couldn't do that. I always felt, you know, I was very loved and I always felt like, oh, well, I can do anything. I mean, there were certain things I couldn't do. I couldn't play quarterback, you know, and I couldn't dunk a basketball. But, you know, there were other things that I just were of interest to me. So I think that the optimism is one. And I think you got to have that. You got to have that in any business, but you really got to have it in our business. Yeah, no kidding. So that's an interesting thing. You feel like you got that optimism from your parents? Yes, certainly from that. They influenced me that way. And not in the, hey, you can do anything you want. But there was never any kind of negativity surrounding that. There was a lot of like, what the hell did you do that for? Kind of things. You know, there were plenty of those questions. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
There wasn't like, you can't do this and let me go do that. Tell us more about your relationship with your parents because they obviously had their hands full. I'd love to hear about their occupation. Certainly your dad being in real estate, your mom as well. They had all these kids. They handled this adversity. And the key takeaway from you so far with all that would made their life so chaotic when you were growing up was optimism. I mean, they must be incredible. Yeah, they were great. They unfortunately both passed away. Listen, there's a thing about Irish Catholics. There's a saying, it's all faith and no hope. And so your faith plays a huge role in, in our lives and what continues to play a very strong role today. But my mom was a homemaker. We were very, very identified with our Irish background. And Irish people, by their very nature, tend to be optimistic and, and very, you know, hey, the sun will come out tomorrow. And my father was in real estate in a great time, but also in a very tough time. And, you know, was always on his own and had a small brokerage company that, you know, at the time that he was in the brokerage business, there was, you know, CB and those guys were around, but they weren't the behemoth they are today. They were small little regional. They had an office in Chicago. They didn't have one in Milwaukee. And so it was a completely different world. But if you kind of go back and it's funny you mentioned that now, I'm just thinking about it, like our family roots and history in real estate history go all the way back to before this country. My on my father's side, my lineage or our direct descendants were Pierre Laclede and Auguste Chateau, who were the founding family of St. Louis. And they came up the Mississippi to seek a new life and they established a trading post in St. Louis. And eventually they were actually, and if you're studying the history, they were actually the outfitters for Lewis and Clark before they started their journey. So so I think that shows a lot of optimism. You know, just say, I'm gonna go up this river and see what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Yeah. It shows optimism and it shows it's also a reflection of your passion for history coming right. back out. It's pretty cool. Right. It's all making sense now. At first it was a little bit confusing, but now it's all starting to make sense. <laughs> it's a long and winding road. As it should be, as it is for everybody. That's why this podcast exists and that's why a couple of people at least like it. All right. You're growing up as a kid, you're into theater, you're a mediocre student. And what happens upon what's called high school graduation? And where do you go from there? You're going to see the theme of optimism coming in <laughs> all along. So I graduated my school at the time in 1988, when I graduated, you didn't really do college visits like today. Like today, it's like a full-time job to take a year and take your kids to college visits. I ended up going to a small Jesuit school in Cincinnati called Xavier University. My first visit to Xavier was my first day. I was like, oh, I'll just go there. That sounds like a good place. I think they play a lot of basketball. And you know, that was the end of my uh, end of my research. So I ended up going into Xavier, enrolled there. Then I managed to get expelled from Xavier. And then I thought the next best idea, instead of going back home to my Irish Catholic mother or my dad, who was going to make me work in a quarry, I thought that the next best idea was just uh, somebody said, hey, you should join the army. I was like, you know what? That's a good idea. I don't know going to do that. And so I literally got on a bus and went downtown Cincinnati and joined the army. Sorry, listeners, for the pause. Taking a major step back here, trying to process all this. I'm close enough with you. And this is a price that you pay for agreeing to come on here. Why did you get expelled? Yeah. So it wasn't for some... Now you say that and people are like, oh my God, he's like a nefarious character. It was... I pulled a fire alarm. And when you pull a fire alarm... What you need to know, what all you young listeners who are listening is, is that 
there's a secret spray that sprays out of the fire alarm and gets on your hands and it's invisible until they put an ultraviolet light on it. And when they do that, then they say, (laughs) all your protestations of not guilty become very guilty. (laughs) So they did not look kindly on that. Oh my goodness. That is a no-no. So I thought it was a good idea. It was one of those things I thought was a good idea at the time. And what did they do? Did they just line you up and just interrogate everybody? And like, how did you get caught? Actually, that's a funny story. So like, you know, pull the fire alarm, ha, 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 and run away. And then I was like, things settle down. And I, I walk back into the dorm and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go to bed. And literally, like you walk in, it was like the secret service like converged in the hallway. They're like, hey, we want to talk to you. And I was like, yeah, I didn't do it. What are you talking about? And that wasn't me. And I literally was like almost out. <laughs> and the head guy comes in. I like, I talk my way out of it. The head guy comes in. And he goes, oh, no, it works better when you turn off the light. And then they turn off the light. My hands were like something out of like Lord of the Rings. Like, like my hands are glowing. <laughs> there was no question on the amount of guilt that you had at that point in time. Once the lights went out, it was over. Okay, you got me. So, yeah. What year was like, were you in school? 1989. So you were a freshman or sophomore? Yeah, I was a freshman. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well played. Yeah. And then... You do the noble thing by hiding it from your parents and then joining the army, which is noble for our country. No, what I did was I called my parents. I said, hey, mom, I got kicked out and I joined the army. I'm leaving next week. I have to go. My, my dad's like, what the hell is going on with you? And my mom, if you have an Irish Catholic hysterical mother, let me tell you, there was a lot of uh, tears shed and a lot of yelling. But I did it. And I'll tell you, Aaron, it was probably a huge... If you look at seminal moments in your life, you can go left and you can go right. It was, if anybody in the world needed to be at the army, it was me. And I was enlisted too. You know, there weren't a lot of suburban, wealthy white kids enlisting as an E1, which is the lowest private you can get in the army. So yeah, and it was a phenomenal experience. I signed up, I didn't know what I was doing, right? I was just like, I just panicked. And so I was like, so I had a two, four stint which was two years of active service and then four years in the reserves. And you go through basic training, which I did. And then you go to school for your skill. I had the most important for your job. And I did sign up. I was smart enough to sign up for the most important job. Absolute most important job in the army. There's no question that I had the most important job and the best job, which was a cook. (laughs) So I knew this was coming. Good. Yeah. So I was the cook. And at the time that I finally kind of got out of school, or out of cook school, and then I was going to do my active duty. And this is probably another theme you'll hear as we go through this. I got stationed. I was briefly at the Pentagon and like for a nanosecond as a cook. And then what happened was, is that the Berlin Wall fell and the the world kind of changed and they brought in civilian cooks and they said, your next job posting is going to be Korea. I'm like, Korea? What? That's hardship duty. What are you talking about? And fortunately, they were doing a bunch of changes in what they were doing. And they said, you know, you can go to my first sergeant or the commander was from someplace in Wisconsin. And at that time, there was a quarterback called Don Mikowski. And he was like going to bring Green Bay back to glory, the magic man. And we would talk about him all the time. And he said, hey, Bertzell, there's a new thing you can do. And you can do a stint in the reserves, but you got to sign up for like six years, four, four, two, I think it was four, two. And I said, give me the pen. Where do I sign? And so I signed up for the reserves and then went back into civilian life. 
after that. And so when you went back into civilian life, first of all, thank you for your service. Thank you. Yeah, it was great. It was good for me. As a follow-up to that, what does civilian life look like? You go back to college, you go... I went back to Xavier. I got back in. I showed them that I had changed my world and changed who I was. And if you know anything about the Jesuit Jesuits, which is a Catholic order, they take care of their own. And so I went to Jesuit high school, I went to an all-boys Jesuit high school. And the guy who was the president of my high school was also on the board at Xavier. And my dad called him and said, listen, he's really turned his life around and you should let him back in. And so I was there. I was done double secret probation, though. So I could never go step foot in the dorms again. So I lived off campus and I went back and it was great. I got my shit together and I did my duty. You know, I was a one week in a month and two weeks out of the year. And it was great. I was very blessed. What'd you study? I was an English major. That's right. That's right. You said that before. Yeah. Okay. So the rest of your college experience goes smoothly. There's no more close calls or even execution of your... No, there was, there was no more. There was a straight and narrow. So I worked my way through college. And I thought at the time, I wanted to be a lawyer, which is what a lot of English majors do. And I was working as a as a waiter in this restaurant. And I was going to quit. And I got a job at a law firm. And I went in to pick up my, my last paycheck. And this is when they gave you pay, actual paychecks. And there was a girl there that we were friends and she was a little bit older than me. And she said, oh, what are you doing here? And I thought it was your day off. I go, I'm leaving. I'm going to pick up my paycheck. She goes, where are you going to go to work and have this much fun and make the kind of money we're making? Because at the time, this was way before casual restaurants existed. And there's these guys had a lock on the thing. And I said, you know what? This girl's kind of cool. You know what? I think she's right. I think I'm going to stay. So I stayed for the adventure and then I stayed for the girl and that girl ended up becoming my wife. So yeah. So anyway, kind of a spoiler alert. Love that. And so I got a job after college with Lee Jeans and I thought this was great. I was making and I moved to Mobile, Alabama and I missed that girl a lot. And she was not able to move because she had a two-year-old child at the another relationship at the time. And so I just made a decision, I'm going to move back to Cincinnati. And so I called my dad and I said, I'm going to move back to Cincinnati. Do you know anybody in the real estate business? I want to get in the real estate business. And this is, this is 1992, 93. And let me tell you, nobody's in the real estate business in 1992 and 93 because all the savings and loan had failed. And everybody's trying to figure out how to be liquid. And he said, I know this guy's son. He does a lot of work for some company called Kroger. You can call him. And so I called him and he said, sure, come on down and see me. He was in Cincinnati. And they were at St. Louis. I have this kind of like Bermuda Triangle of my life from Milwaukee to St. Louis to Cincinnati and then back to Milwaukee. So, so this guy was from Milwaukee. He was the son of my dad's chief rival, big brokerage firm up in Milwaukee called Palachek at the time. It's now CBRE. His name was Ned Brickman. He said, come in. So we spent 90 minutes together. And we spent the first 15 minutes talking about real estate. And then we spent the next 75 minutes talking about Reggie White's impact on the Green Bay Packers and how he was really going to bring him back to glory. And at the end of it, he said, do you want a job? And I said, sure, I'd like a job. That'd be great. He failed to tell me it was 100% commission, but you know, that's a story for another day. So that kind of was the beginning of my career. A little bit to unwind there. So you obviously wanted to move back from Mobile to Cincinnati to chase your now wife, which clearly was a very good decision. So kudos to you on that. What maybe wasn't as good of a decision was the choice to go into real estate. How did you arrive to that conclusion? 
because I was interested in it. Certainly my father had an influence on me. He was in the business. It was something that was familiar to me. It was something that I I felt that I don't know that there was any thought beyond that. Like real estate looks interesting. They take English majors. And so this seems like something to do. I don't know that there was any more thought beyond that. Love it. So you get into brokerage. I did. So the company was called the Midland Group. And it's funny because there's a lot of family tree. If you look at the world today, in the Midland Group, and they were at the time, the largest Kroger developer in the country. They had had a relationship with Kroger. And at the time, Kroger, people don't remember, but Kroger went through a leverage buyout in the late 80s, early 90s. KKR tried to take them over. They leveraged their way out. And Midland had a unique program with them where they could develop Kroger stores. Kroger was their partner. They built like 50 stores and they had a brokerage division. And so we were all young, young guys. I don't think anybody was over 32 in the company. And so they had a very robust training program, which went as follows. My first boss, I went to see him as great guys, a guy by the name of Steve Miller, who now runs a very successful fund management business called Viking Properties. But he, he said to me, he goes, we have a robust training program. And Steve looked like five years old, four years old. And he said, we have a shopping center in Troy, Ohio. And he tossed me a map and he said, go lease it. End of training program. So I was like, okay, I'll go lease it. So I would go up and I would cold call and I would be like, you want to go lease space in our center? We have this Kroger center, move on. I ended up leasing it and we got some other guys in the business and picking up some tenant rep business and leasing shopping centers and just doing whatever I could to you know, and then that you do in the brokerage business. I ended up getting married. I was blessed because I married my trophy wife first. She had a job with benefits. So that was perfect. So yeah, so that was kind of, that was the beginning. How did you do it professionally? I mean, with this no training and how did you get deals done? Well, I glommed on. I really glommed on to a lot of people and I wasn't afraid to ask questions and I wasn't afraid to look stupid. And so like, I would say, I don't know. How do you do this? What does force majeure mean? And I would find people in the office that I saw being successful or did things and I would emulate them. And I also read a lot. My dad gave me a book early on in my career. It was an old book written in the 70s and it's still relevant today called Winning Through Intimidation. And it was a book about real estate. And the key about that book was knowledge is power. And so the more knowledge you have, and this was very powerful. And so I... I said about just kind of educating myself and watching people that I thought were successful and and emulating them and also watching people that were successful and things I didn't feel comfortable doing or didn't want to do. Who were some of those? I'm going to call them mentors. Fair statement. Yeah. You know, certainly my dad for one, but the first guy, Ned Brickman, who hired me and we're actually still partners in real estate today. Steve Miller was one. Another guy named Scott Katz was very influential to me. Midland was a great company. It was just, you know, there were a lot of very successful people there. A guy, Danny Fox, who ended up becoming my boss later on it when Midland was bought by Regency. So there were peer mentors. There were older mentors. This was in the days we didn't have podcasts. We didn't have all the stuff that a lot of young people have today where they can find resources. So you kind of dig those resources out. Yeah. I mean, what an unbelievable learning resource that podcasts can be. Yeah. Wink, wink, cough, cough. No, seriously. I mean, I've listened to like 80 or podcasts. I'm like, I've learned a ton. Like, I'll put you in the mentorship. Oh, I'm definitely not a mentor. No, 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 no. You know, I have this new saying that I've learned that the older I get, the younger my teachers are. So I like that. I think that it's there's an underlying theme that people's 
rise to success can often be expedited by seeking coaching and implementing that coaching, i.e. going to mentors, and then also investing their own time into doing things like you doing with avid reading. So like when you peel the onion back, it's certainly not surprising that you've been able to accomplish everything that you've been able to accomplish. Now, now that your head is big, I'm going to ask you a question that I love asking when we get to the chronological part of people's stories when they're in their first job. And I love you for this because I know you're not going to hold back. And I know that it'll be interesting based on our conversation thus far and based on our historical relationship. So tell us an embarrassing story from your first gig or you know, early on in your career. Oh, man. Wow, an embarrassing story. I had to build you up as tell you how great you are. And now I got to hit you right in the gut. I have no shame. So it's hard to embarrass me. So I was doing a... <laughs> I haven't thought about this in a long time. So we were big Kroger developers. And so Kroger had pulled out of Michigan and closed a bunch of stores at the time. And so they had all these closed stores and it was a big closed store problem. And they said, who wants to go to Detroit to handle Kroger's? And I was like, well, I'll go. Because I was thinking, oh shit, these are like 50,000 square foot stores. Commissions will be great. You know, I'll figure it out. So they had this deal in Ann Arbor. And at the time, they had this deal in Ann Arbor, pretty good piece of real estate, it's full store. And so I somehow convinced this guy from Bed Bath & Beyond to come look at it. So he's from New York. He's like, you know, this sharp elbowed New Yorker. And we get in the car and I'm driving around. And I visited the store once and I ended up getting lost. And he's telling me about like this woman who had, they're always sending letters, you know, on how they should be in Ann Arbor. And he's asking me about things and I'm just making bullshit up. And finally he turns to me and he goes, I should have probably hired this woman who wrote us the letter because she knows more about real estate than you do. <laughs> And I see that guy, but he still brings it up. <laughs> I was so embarrassed because you had to drive the car back. It was like awful. God. Oh, man. I haven't thought about my story in a long time. Good. I'm really glad I asked that question and pried yeah. it out of you because A, as my good friend, I get to watch you get pretty red in the cheeks and doing this over Zoom. <laughs> and B, there, and in all seriousness, there is a great underlying lesson here, which is one that we hear. Often when people are mentoring or giving advice to people who are newer into the business, but for some reason, it still comes up here and there. And we're going to take your embarrassment as an opportunity to shed that lesson, which is you don't know the answer to something. Don't make up a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Ask or say, I'll get back to you. I appreciate you sharing that because it's funny. And I like the fact that I get to laugh with you because we always do that whenever we interact. And B, more importantly, there is a good underlying lesson there. And we've all heard it before, but yet... It's one of those things that you can't really over-remind people of. And also about being prepared. Like I should have mapped the route. I should have been prepared. I should have had my shit together. And I didn't. Appreciate you owning that. I know that's not an easy thing to do. And and for the millions and millions and millions of listeners out there that are now going to point and laugh at you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. So you're in brokerage. You're doing pretty well. You get an opportunity to work on some Kroger stuff in Detroit. And you're building yourself up in your career. You're working hard. You're starting to hopefully make a few bucks. What happens next? So you got to remember in the mid-90s, that was the rise of the modern, what, what is really now known as the modern read era. And all these guys who were big developers, a lot of family developers, and the, the only way they could get liquid and kind of get all the trouble they were in was to go public. And so you saw all these amazing family companies, Simon and Taubman and DDR, and a lot of them, Regency. 
which started as family companies. And so we were very attractive because Midland had a robust portfolio and we owned a center. And I'll circle back to the Birdsall thing and later on maybe in the podcast, but we owned a center in Hyde Park, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cincinnati. And we were partners. It was a great time. It had two grocery stores in it. And they were the two number one grocery stores in the chain. There was a number one Kroger in the chain at the time and a concept called Thriftway, which doesn't exist today. And I think it had like one of the first old navies in it too. And there was a partnership that was with some guys out of uh, Boston and they wanted to sell it. And a company came in to buy it. And that company was called Regency, which was a small read at the time. They were less than a billion dollars. And they ended up buying the whole company. And most of the Midland guys left, but I needed a job. I mean, at that time, I now had two kids and I liked brokerage, but it's hard. <laughs> so I was like, oh, maybe there's another opportunity out here. And I'm a pretty good, I'm good with a platform, you know, where there was a platform. So, so I stayed on a Regency and they needed, at the time, I was just doing leasing and they said, oh, we need acquisition guys. And I was, they go, anybody here can do acquisitions? And I was like, yeah, me, I can do that. By the way, no clue what I'm doing. I'm an English major in college, no finance background. And so they said, okay, you're going to do acquisitions. And so I started doing acquisitions of shopping centers. Love that. So we have a few things in common there. So obviously, as you remember, we actually own a property in Hyde Park now. Right. Your percentage rent should be going up because you know the Birdsalls are active buyers at the Lululemon down there. Here you go. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for uh, helping support our wonderful tenant Lululemon there. And then secondly, I know what it's like to go from leasing and just step up and say, I can do acquisitions. I did that four years ago. So totally can relate. It's, it's easy, right? It's not, yeah. not a problem. How was that experience? It was great. Now you got to remember this is again, the technology exists today didn't exist. So I would literally go, I would like drive to Pittsburgh and say, hi, Mr. Zucker, my name's David Burtzall. I'd like to buy your shopping center. That was like, seriously, that was like my pitch. And I would cold call and, and do that. And then I was actually pretty successful at it. We bought a bunch of centers in the Midwest and, and I had a lot of mentors. I mean, it wasn't me. I had a guy, I mentioned him earlier, Danny Fox, who was my boss and he was great and really kind of helped me through it. And then what happened was, and you'll appreciate this, Aaron, where you are, is shopping centers got too expensive at eight and a half caps. They got too expensive. And <laughs> grocery and shopping centers, eight and a half caps were too expensive. So they said, we need to be developers. We need to go out and grow a development business. Who can be a developer? I'm like, oh, I can do that. Totally. And so that led to my next career pivot as a developer. I was in Fenton, Michigan. And I was working with a broker and I tied up this piece of land and I got, a, there was a grocer up there at the time called Farmer Jack, grocery chain owned by A&P. And I got Farmer Jack to go there and poof, I was a developer and did my first deal. And I think, I think Regency might still own that today. I'm not sure. And then the broker that I was working with, and this is probably a lesson you want to get across in the podcast, especially for the younger audiences that Sometimes you just got to ask for the order, right? And so I was working with this broker and I said, Hey, what else are you working on? He said, Oh, I'm working on some deal with this company. It's kind of like Kmart. They're out of Arkansas. They're doing a bunch of stores. They're called Walmart. I said, Oh, really? You think they want to go in Cincinnati? Are they looking in Cincinnati? And he said, Well, yeah. I go, Oh, I got this piece of ground tied up in Cincinnati. I did have kind of an instinct for good ground. And I had this piece of ground tied up in Cincinnati. You think they'd go there? And he said, oh, I'll call them and ask them and call them. I said, yeah, they'd be interested. So I quickly went home and tied up the ground that I didn't have tied up. And uh, I got, and I can go through the story, but maybe I'll just pause there. Because that whole thing led to a whole other 
career because the the story was that I tied up the land, I got Walmart and I got Lowe's to go to commit to it. And at the last minute, Lowe's pulls out and the guy from Walmart said, hey, we're not going to pull out. We need this store. So can you close on it? And it wasn't my decision, but credit to Regency. They said, yeah. They said, Bertzold, do you think you can get another tenant there besides Lowe's? And I said, yeah, for sure. For sure, I can get them. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) So we closed on the ground. And Walmart was very appreciative. And they were so appreciative that we did that, that they said, we have this problem in this store in Fort Wright, Kentucky. Do you think you can go down and handle it? I'm like, of course I can handle it. Yeah. You're on a roll. Yeah. It's like you stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. And so that led to a long development relationship with Walmart for a number of years. So, wow. Wow, wow, wow. So unwinding the time at Regency a little bit, just to put things in perspective, how long were you in acquisitions for before you pivoted over to development? Probably like three years. Oh, okay. Okay, so some serious time. And then the development game... It obviously started as real estate driven, then it's shifted over to tenant driven. It sounds like, is that fair? Yeah, it was always kind of tenant driven. So I developed relationships. And you got to remember, this is the early 2000s. It's the Wild West out there. I mean, it was like, you know, Walmart's, they were like Sherman's March through Georgia. They're open 200 stores a year and Target's opening stores and Office Mac. I mean, all these guys are opening stores. And so, you know, we were all trying to get our piece. And so that world, it was a crazy time then. And so it was a lot of tenant-driven and a lot of tenant relationships that I still have to this day or friends that are in the business to this day. And that's one lesson for the audience, especially younger people, especially in retail real estate. I'm doing deals with guys. You know, I know you had Mark Heath on earlier, who's an old friend. I have a great story about Mark, which I'll share later. But he's a rarity where he stays in one place for 20 plus years. A lot of these guys move around. So the guys that I was... I mean, doing deals with Blockbuster are now somewhere else. You know, so those relationships transfer and you see it a lot. It's pretty special how that works out and how things come full circle. It's a pretty unique part of our business. For sure. And like, it's funny, you will run into someone on the elevator and you're like, oh, that guy's a debt broker and I'm a leasing agent. Like, they're nice, whatever. But just a little follow up here and there. And next thing you know, they're running a bank and that leasing agent becomes a property owner and then they need to borrow money. And it's like, oh, now this is a match. So it's funny how things come full circle. And it sounds like that you've been able to develop some great relationships and have a lot of fun. And it's also made you some money along the way, which is awesome. So you're in the heyday building community and power centers and grocery anchor deals with Regency. Things are going great, it sounds like as you, to use your words, got your piece, the action, if you will, then what happens? So you know how when you're in a deal, so two things happen. One, I took on a project in Cincinnati, which was, <laughs> which is too long for this podcast, but I will give you this brief synopsis of it. It was a former Ford factory that Ford actually had built airplane transmissions there. And at the time, it was infill site, and it was the largest brownfield cleanup in the history of the state of Ohio at the time. It's been much larger now. And I convinced Walmart to go there. And I convinced them to close a different store in order to go to this location. And that store was owned by a guy in Cincinnati who had a small company focused on grocery anchor shopping centers and kind of smaller markets, tertiary, secondary tertiary markets. And so they closed that store. 
And he was pissed because he lost the store. And then they went over there. So he had a guy that worked for him who actually grew up in Wisconsin, who called me up and said, hey, this guy would like to meet with you. We're looking to start a new fund called the Land Fund. And we'd be interested if you come over and want to take a look at it. And that guy's name was uh, Mike Phillips. And he had started a company called Phillips Edison. And looking back on that, I was ready for a change. I also felt, this is 2007, and you'll see this in your career, and it's hard to recognize, but you'll see it. You'll say, the rhythm of the deals were changing. The Walmart, they were harder to get. They were longer timeframes. There was a lot of stuff going on. And, and I didn't know it then, but I could feel the rhythm. There was something changing in the air, but I didn't know what that was. And so I got recruited to go over to Phillips Edison and run a what at the time was called the Land Development Fund. That was the the premise of the land development fund is we're going to buy land in the path of progress, big, large swaths of land in the path of progress, get it all entitled, sell it off to the residential guys and, and then keep the shopping centers. And that was a brilliant plan in 2007. And then in 2008, <laughs> it's not such a good plan anymore. It's just a whole, like, not a good plan. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. <laughs> what did you do instead? So the plan blows up, I guess. So I tell you, you know, I've been really blessed in my career and where I've pivoted to have been fortunate and to be joining Phillips Edison, which I, to this day, am convinced is probably the best place to learn retail real estate for anybody. We pivoted and we said, well, we had money and we were in the recession. And a lot of people thought it was going to be RTC 2.0, which was, for those of you who don't remember, was the government... When the savings and loan crashed in 1993 or so, the government formed something called the Resolution Trust Corporation to sweep all the bad assets into the RTC. And people made fortunes, absolute fortunes buying from the RTC. And we thought this was going to be that. And it was to an extent, the tarp and stuff like that. So we pivoted and we happened to have money in the recession. And while the company was focused, the large Phillips Edison was focused on grocery anchored shopping centers, we said, well, let's pivot and we'll just do non-grocery anchored so we don't compete with the company. And so we ended up buying lifestyle centers and power centers and our niche became kind of operationally complex assets that didn't have a grocery in them. And that's what we did. So basically, Phillips Edison starts buying everything, right? Because they're buying grocery anchored steals on one side of the table and on the other side of the table through the Strategic Investment Fund is buying non-grocery anchored retail products at the height of the recession. That's the summary, right? Yeah, yeah, that was it. And doing some development, we built some stuff and we were buying notes. We were buying really just distressed assets and Jeff were very supportive of it. And you know, they were true entrepreneurs and recognized opportunity and gave us a ton of leeway and really a lot of confidence, a lot of confidence that we could do this. Yeah, so that's what we did and we were successful at it. Awesome. Keep going. Everybody wants yeah. to know. So. <laughs> so I did that for a number. And as Phil Edison was early out in the non-traded REIT business, and you and I met there and they got really, really big. And in order for Phil Edison to become who they are today, all the other strategies, they had to be a pure play grocery anchor shopping center REIT. And so all the other strategies really had to go away. And, and by that time, work on these deals, I'll tell you, they're fun and they're cool to talk about. They're a lot of work. And I just was kind of burnt out. I probably needed a change. I didn't recognize the burnout at the time, but I probably did, just needed a change. And Mike wanted to lead the company in a new direction, which was great. 
But I just decided that I probably just needed to go off and do my own thing. It was time. And so I left with, again, nothing but love in my heart for my, all my experience at Pico and started my own and was just going to go develop on my own. And that's where a pivotal lesson, <laughs> a lot of pivotal lessons were learned because for a long time, I had just been a platform guy and worked on platforms. And now I kind of had to do it myself. And so there were a lot of things that I thought I knew that I didn't know that I learned. So that was good. And one of the things I learned is that I had a piece of ground tied up in in all the skill sets and everything, but I no longer had the backing of a big company. So I had a big piece of ground tied up in Cincinnati. And all I had to do was get it rezoned, which was my specialty. And it was a called my favorite failure because I underestimated the opposition a lot and ended up not getting it rezoned. But it also changed kind of who I self-identified with, which was I was a developer. That's kind of how I thought myself. And now I decided, you know what? I don't have to be a developer anymore. I can do other things. So I ended up buying a couple of small shopping centers myself and was going to really kind of just do that and have a little bit of a lifestyle business and own some shopping centers and manage those. And that was going to be fine. But there was a guy at Phillips Edison who I'd become very close with, who I greatly admired. He He's just probably one of the more brilliant strategists in real estate that I've ever met. He's got just the ability to distill down to the obvious is a skill set that's incredible. And he said, I don't think you're looking at this the right way. And he said, I think that there's an opportunity here for us to buy a lot of these if we structure it correctly. And so I said, okay. And so we put together a white paper on it and really thought it through the plan. And that became the genesis of the company that I co-founded with that guy from Phillips Edison, Ryan Moore, today called Last Mile. Yeah, which is wonderful. And I happen to know Ryan and everything you said about him is completely accurate. Tell us about Last Mile. What do you guys do? What are you up to? Sure. So we started the company and we originally thought that it was a great family office play. Give us some context as well. How long were you on your own? And when did you form Last Mile? Yeah, so I left Phillips Edison in 15. And then I started the company with Ryan in 19. And really, the vision of the company was we were going to start a fund management business. It was not just going to be a real estate business, be a fund management business. And we pitched the idea to a local family office here that had a long history in real estate called North American Properties. And they really liked the idea and they liked the concept. They understood what we were doing. They understood retail real estate, which is a nuanced business. And they were willing to give us a shot and back us, which was vitally important. Not only did they provide capital to get us started, but they give us a lot of confidence. And you need that when you're starting. You need that almost as much as you need capital. You need somebody to believe in you. So Ryan and I, you know, we started the company in 19. We raised our first fund and closed it March 26 of 2020, just in time for the whole world to shut down. And <laughs> we're like, wow, we've raised this fund. We got this great idea. Now the absolute asteroid is hitting the earth in terms of our strategy. But obviously, we came out the other side of it and were able to place that first fund very successfully, a lot of discipline, and now have just completed our second fundraise, which was almost quadruple our first, and feel like the company's now well on its way to our strategy. And strategy is buying unanchored, multi-tenant retail centers. Love that. How much money did you guys raise in fund one and where did you get it from? 
Fund one was about $30 million. And a lot of that capital was ours. North American owns 50% of our company. So the bulk of it came from the partnership of the company. And then the balance came from high net worth investors and relationships that we had. Nice. Now it's easy, right? Yeah. 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 And that's easy with 7% interest rates. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, no, but I mean, listen, we've been able to, and I credit, you know, we've been able to put some systems and processes in place. And that's the, listen, it's a hard strategy. I mean, every business is hard. This is a hard strategy. It's tough. It's tough to emulate. You have to look at a lot of deals, but we have the right people in place. We have the right leadership. Ryan does a great job of leading the company, setting us up for success. And we have a lot of disciplines in place. And so I couldn't be more, you know, I'm always optimistic, but I couldn't be more optimistic about where we are today and going into 23 based on a lot of hard work that we put in the past. Love that. What does the company look like today? How many properties do you guys have? And what's the human capital? We have about 20 properties from Arizona down to Florida up into Wisconsin. So we're really excited about that. And we got a couple of more in the pipeline that we're getting ready to close on. You know, I think we're well on our way to meeting our goals for next year, which is we'd like to quadruple the size of the company. Love that. Love that. Well, I have no doubt that you guys will get there, especially with the tide turning in the correct way for value-add retail buyers. Wink, wink, cough, cough. We're looking to do the same in our own way here in Charlotte. So hell of a story. Love the way you tell it, by the way. It's extremely entertaining and... Certainly, I speak on behalf of every listener out there. It's been fun to hear about. That said, I got to drill you a little bit before I let you run. So what are your weaknesses and how do you navigate them? Well, you should ask my wife because she has a longer list of my weaknesses. So, <laughs> so you know, I think impulsiveness is a weakness that I really try to work on. Being disciplined. I've always been disciplined, but it, it's in the past, I probably haven't as much organization is I'm like most real estate guys with a lot of ADD. Like, oh, do shiny penny, shoot, squirrel, squirrel. And so I think I've had to really work on that. And how do I work on it? I've been able to get into routine. I read a lot about weaknesses and how to overcome some of those or work on your strengths and really surrounding myself with people that call me out on those. And they're not pleasant conversations, by the way, <laughs> but they're the best conversations. And, and I'm a firm believer in you're the average of the five people that you hang out with. That's been said, you know, it's not an original statement, but it's a very true statement. That doesn't mean like people that you're going to the ballgame with or whatever. That can mean what are you putting in your brain that's influencing you? And I'm a big believer in that. So I try to surround myself with people that are going to make me better and positivity and but real realness and calling you out and telling you hard truths. I love that. Biggest curveball you've been thrown in your career. You've hit a few. I'll say that. Yeah, I've had a few. Certainly COVID was one and, and navigating that. I don't know. You start recognizing patterns when you've been in the business for a long time. So you just kind of got to be comfortable with change. Like Things are going to change. You got to navigate. You got to navigate those. What's the craziest deal you've ever worked on? It's funny. You know, you're going to ask that. So I don't know that it was the craziest deal, but it's a deal that gave me confidence. There was an old... He didn't have a podcast. He had a radio show. His name was Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey always like told a story. And then he said, now you know the rest of the story. So anybody that's listened to Mark Heath's podcast, so Mark and I have been friends for 20 years. We used to compete against McDonald's. He used to like come into my territory and I'd be like, 
what are you doing down here? I'm repping McDonald's. And Mark would be like honing in on me. So he goes to work for Chipotle. I tie up this piece of ground in Cincinnati. And if you listen to his podcast, he said a good friend of his demanded a non-refundable deposit <laughs> to get to Pelosi. <laughs> that friend was me. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> You're laughing. You have to do, people have to be able to understand you. I'm sorry. It's an audio show. So <laughs> So he there is a piece that there was an old dairy mart in Cincinnati, and Mark had just gone to work for Chipotle. And I said, Hey, would you look at this site? And he said, Yes. And so I tie it up. I got like no money. I get it worked out. I'm trying to get Mark to do it. And he's kind of navigating his early Chipotle. So I asked him for a non-refundable deposit so I can basically fund my project. And he was like, we're not doing that. Anyways, it worked out and I ended up, I think it, was, it might have been Chipotle's first freestanding store ever. So I think he might have said that. Somebody should go back and listen to the Mark Heath episode, who was great, by the way. That's really funny. No, he definitely said it in the thing about he had a good friend that said, in answer to this question, that asked him for a non-refundable deposit. It's amazing. Who would have thunk? So it goes to show you how small this business can be at times. That's a good story. And I'm glad that it's coming back twice on the platform. What advice do you have for someone who's less than 5 years in the business or somebody who's trying to break in? So what I would say is... I told you about the 5 people you surround yourself. People talk about mentors. I like to think of them in my life that I've had influencers, mentors, and guardian angels. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So mentors can be old and young. I made the comment earlier that people think mentors have to be older, an older person in the business. But frankly, I made the comment earlier, and I'll repeat it here, is that the older I get, the younger my teachers are. I consider Ryan, my partner, very much a teacher. I learn a lot from him. And then I deliberately seek out older people in the business. I have a lot of friends that are now retired and I get their advice. But frankly, I get a lot of mentoring from the younger millennials in our business because I have zero clue on half the things that, you know, I think what you're doing is I listen to your podcast and I learn a lot. I would never have the balls to do what you do. I think it's absolutely inspiring what you built, the brand that you built for yourself. And I mean that. So I would say surround yourself with those five people. It doesn't necessarily have to be physically surrounding. It can be, it's what you listen to on your podcast and what you listen to to make you better and develop good habits. That's the other thing. You know, I have a very specific rituals that I do every day. I don't listen to the news. I check the Wall Street Journal in the morning to make sure there's no zombie attacks coming. And then I'm done because it's just doom scrolling in terms of the news. I'm not on Twitter, but I'm informed. I listen to a book in the morning on my way to work, something that I think is going to be good. I'm listening to like right now in my audiobook on the Discipline is Destiny by Ryan Holiday, which has been a great book. I do a lot of audiobooks or a lot of podcasts that I just find about people to unlock people's success. So educate yourself. Love that. Speaking of books, you've mentioned before, and I've gotten some lists from you. You are an avid reader. So I'm excited to ask you this one. What's one book that's changed your life? So it depends where you are in your life. Let me answer it that way. So I read now because I'm older and my kids are gone and out of the house, so I have more time. So I'll read 50 to 60 books a year. And that includes audiobooks. It depends where you are. So Winning Through Intimidation was a great book. It was actually... It's a little dated now, but it was a pretty good book early on in my career. There was a book 
that really led me in a lot of directions that I read after I had left Phillips Edison. I was trying to kind of figure out what I was going to do called The Code of the Extraordinary Mind by Michelle Lacchiani. And it really led to a bunch of other books that were highly influential to me. So, but I read a lot of biographies. So it depends what you want to do. Like if you want to learn about religion, where you are in your religion, then there's a certain books, like I've read everything from the autobiography of a yogi, which is Steve Jobs' favorite book, to The Case for Christ, Investigative Reporter out of Chicago. Business biographies, I think are fascinating, not necessarily memoirs, but you know the Steve Jobs book. There's a great book, about CAA, which is Creative Artist Agency. It's a thousand pages, but it's great. Power Broker is another thousand page book by Robert Carroll, but it's a really good book. So, so I like biographies. And the reason I like biographies is I like to learn how people have overcome challenges in their lives before and what they did to do that. Because a lot of the challenges are not new, but how did they do it? How emotionally were they able to get it? And you've had some you know, we were talking off camera earlier, but you've had some people that on your podcast who have overcome things that, that to me are fascinating. And how could I do that? Could I overcome that? And a lot of history books are, are interesting to me. Code of Extraordinary Mind is probably really... Oh, actually, the number one book, if somebody's going to read it, and it's a long book, and it's a thick book, and it's a big book, and it's a, not a book that you sit in one sitting and read, but it's called Poor Charlie's Almanac by Charlie Munger. And it's not really a book. It's a list of his speeches and talks over the years. But it is filled with incredibly practical wisdom, especially on investing. That's a great book. But that book took me almost a year to read. Wow. Wow. Well, as I expected, a laundry list of outstanding books to read. And we'll get as many of them that I can write down and, and go back and listen to on our website, <laughs> the Zucker Investment Group website. All right, favorite and last question. You know it's coming. It's a long time from now or whenever you decide because you hopefully have controlled your destiny. Actually, it is a long time from now. You just raised a fund. Yeah, long time. Long, long time. You decide to take a break for in perpetuity and go hang out on a beach or do whatever it is that you decide to do so you can just read all day. ICSE and all the finance trade articles and everything are... Yeah, that's the big news of the day that David Birdsall is going to hang it up. What do you want those articles to say about you and your legacy in the business? There's a great Yiddish word. I think it's like my favorite word in the business. And it's one word. He was a mensch. He was a mensch. And mensch, for those of you who don't know Yiddish, <laughs> means good person. He was a good person. If you can live a life and somebody can say, you know what? He's a mensch. Because I've been surrounded by a lot of mensches and uh, been blessed by them. So that was it. Probably one word. Simple. Sweet and short, a great way to be looked upon. I don't expect anything different. Yeah, David, you've been fantastic. You've exceeded my already very high expectations of our conversation. I can't wait for everybody to get a chance to listen to this and provide feedback. And your wisdom and entertainment were a perfect match for our show. And I can't thank you enough for joining. Well, hey, thanks you for having me. And I sincerely mean it, Aaron. I think you know it's been fun to watch your career, and uh, we've met each other over the years, and your success and what you've done. And it's really admirable. I tell my kids, you know, my son's in real estate department at Kohl's. And when he asked me, I said, you should follow this guy because he knows what he's doing and he's somebody that you should be talking to. I'm flattered. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to Limitless. 
how to crush it in commercial real estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts.